You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Well, what's the angriest uh, you've ever made your parents? Well, mine was when I was tasked to uh, sell my mum's 1990s Toyota Sora 
she had a buyer, but she was at work. So she told me to fill out the transfer of ownership card that you would swap with the buyer. And I did it all. I, sh- I shook his hands. I saw mum's car drive away. And mum called me after that and asked me if, if everything went okay. Did it all go all right? I said, all good, mum. I filled out the card. And she goes, did you fill out both sides? My eyes widened. Turns out I hadn't filled out the back half, which was also the part where uh, both parties would sign it off. And she asked, did you get uh, his details? And sweat started dripping from my forehead. Turns out his details were on the card that I gave back to him. Uh, And then she asked, did you get the cash off him? And I froze. Turns out, no, I did not. She was so angry that I remember uh, calling my friend straight after that phone call with my mum and I actually said to him, hey, man, I messed up bad. I'm thinking of driving to another state for good. Do you want to join me? (laughs) That's the only time I've ever thought about running away from home. Thankfully, I was able to contact the buyer and we sorted it all out. Thankfully, he was nice and honest. But boy, did I learn from that day onwards the importance of sealing the deal properly, you know, to always make sure things are certainly official in these sort of agreements to make sure our agreements were properly confirmed. And this is essentially what we read about here in uh, Exodus 24. See, for the past few chapters now, God had laid out his covenant with his people. You know, the Israelites had just been given God's law for their lives. And for this covenant in particular, this, this Mosaic covenant, God reminded his people of their obligation to be obedient to his law. In Exodus 19 verse 5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. See, they were God's people, chosen by him, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They owed him their lives, their obedience, their honor, their worship. See, here in our chapter today, we read of this, we read of this covenant being confirmed, where it's made official. The covenant sealed the deal or best described, the covenant is ratified. And it's an important chapter because it homes in on the very theme of worship. See, this chapter describes to us a great covenant confirmation ceremony where the people of God would accept the terms of their holy God, that they will worship him in obedience and holiness. And in this ceremony, we see a chapter that sets the pattern for biblical worship. See, theologian Philip Ryken says, Exodus 24 is the story of a worship service, the first one fully described in the Bible. It contains nearly all the basic elements of a public service. There was a call to worship, the reading of God's word, a confession of faith, and the sharing of a sacramental meal, all done in the presence of a holy and glorious God. See, what we'll see in our passage today is the Mosaic Covenant ratified, confirmed by ceremony, a ceremony that is fixed on the utmost worship of a holy and faithful God. And it starts with a covenant confirmed by a call. So verse one, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. See, if we remember back in chapter 19, the Israelites were were gathered and encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai. But it is here now that God personally calls Moses and a handful of others to come up to him and do what? To worship. Like what we do before every song or every Sunday on a service, this is essentially the, the same in the sense that this is a call to worship. God would call Moses and a few other other of Israel's representatives up 
You know, this was like the original fellowship of the ring. These 74 were called to approach their God for worship, a call to come as a fellowship into the presence of a holy God and to worship him in glory and praise. And it, isn't it interesting that after everything we've read in the last few chapters, that in order for the covenant to be confirmed, it meant God's people were called by God to come together to worship him. And it makes you think, couldn't they have just accepted the terms of the covenant and that was that? A theologian, Peter Enns, writes, This covenant is essentially not a matter of a mutual agreement or pact made between God and the Israelites. It is, as we read, the covenant that the Lord has made with you. It is by his initiative. He is the instigator. When the Israelites are to, uh, what, the, what the Israelites are to do is accept and agree to live by the terms of the covenant that God and God alone has stipulated. See, Israel's choice was never between making a covenant either with other gods or with Yahweh, but between making a covenant with other gods or accepting the covenant Yahweh graciously, mercifully, lovingly made with them. See, this isn't a mutual agreement between a buyer and a seller of a used Toyota. This is a sovereign king who has saved a people for himself to live for him, to live like him, to worship him. And so it makes sense. It's actually appropriately beautiful that to confirm this covenant, Israel would gather for a ceremony that instills the very nature of what God called them to, to worship him. Because as we've seen all throughout this series in Exodus, one of the key themes has been that God saves his people, that they may know him and worship him. See, Tim Chester wrote, God doesn't simply save the Israelites from slavery and death. He saves them for something. He saves for relationship. He saves them so they can enjoy his presence. See, this ceremony is a worship service. The chosen people meet at the mountain to worship and behold the glory of the God who saved them for himself. And it is in this ceremony that we see an important element in their worship. We see that this was a covenant confirmed from the book. So verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. See, what the words of the Lord and all the rules refers to are are the commandments, laws and and statutes that we've previously looked at over the past three chapters now, which then Moses proceeds to write down. Verse 4, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. See, this was part and parcel of ancient covenants that they always be uh, written down. Basically, whenever a party entered into a treaty with another, the terms of the agreement would be on text to detail what it all involved. And once laid out and accepted, they would be written down and subject to no further change. And I think there's something significant in that, that even as ancient, as ancient times as them, then, where oral tradition was what people relied on, for something so important, they would ensure to have it written down. See, Moses knew the words of God were imperative here. So he put it in writing that they would never be forgotten, which is why we still have those words today. Moses had written down the words and all the rules of the Lord and together they would make the book of the covenant, which Moses reads to Israel for what seems to be a second time now in verse seven, verse seven. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So it seems a little redundant that Moses would proclaim the exact 
same things to Israel again, doesn't it? Like after the first reading of the law, we read in verse 3 that the Israelites already agreed and answered in one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Why would Moses need to say it again in verse 7? Well, I think there, there are good reasons to this. Well, we think of a wedding. Usually during the beginning of the ceremony, both the bride and groom are asked to declare their intent. They get, they'll get asked, will you take this person to be your lawfully wedded spouse? And they'll, you know, they'll say the I wills, proclaiming that, yes, this is their intent to go into a marriage covenant with each other. But if they left it there and went off, they're actually not married. It's not until they say their marriage vows set after that confirms their marriage covenant. So similarly for the Israelites, when read the first time, it led Israel, it let Israel understand the covenant and what God demanded of them. The second time, it was their vow, their promise to indeed do it, to confirm the covenant established with them. But I think there's another good reason to have it read twice. And it was simply that the Israelites needed to hear it again. See, out of everybody, the Israelites needed to hear this over and over, especially when we consider just how flaky their commitment to God has been, as we've seen in Exodus, obviously. See, God's word is important, and it showed the seriousness and weightiness of it all as, as they heard the same words reread to them, what it meant for them to truly live as a holy nation, what they were agreeing to. So weighty are God's words that it called for a response, which the Israelites Israelites did both times. They promised to do whatever God said. They responded with one voice, united. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. See, thinking through this, when we look at the uh, events of what happened here with the reading of the law twice, what's in view here for us is just how important and fundamental the word of God is in this ceremony of worship. For Moses to, to share the words to all of Israel and then to write it down, and read it, read from it again as a way of confirming the covenant made with God. We can already see that from the very first worship service as a people of God, that they were guided by God's written revelation. This was the authoritative word of God, whose words were written and read to the people of God as they worshipped him. These were his people gathered together in, in earnest assembly with God's word fundamental to their public worship of a holy and glorious God. So we can see why Philip Ryken described this chapter as setting the pattern for biblical worship. Because for God's people today, when we're gathered together in earnest assembly, as we come together to give praise to the same and glorious God, God's word must be fundamental to our worship. See, Kevin DeYoung says, it's not just about feeling the heart of worship. It's about this book, the Bible, in this service, the book must be read and the people must respond to it. It's why here at City and Hill, our church, we strive to saturate our, our worship services with the word of God, that God's word, God's people may be taught, may be edified, reminded, transformed by God's very words. You know, all scriptures, God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work as it said in 2 Timothy. It's why we have a music team who put a whole lot of thought into the songs chosen as we worship, that God's people may have an opportunity to, to voice a response to God's word in light of what we've heard, that we too in song, in voice can respond, yes, Lord, all the words that you have spoken, we will do. 
So what this covenant confirmation ceremony did was pattern for us the significant of God, the significance of God's authoritative word in our worship of Him, that God's people hear it, that we receive it, that we understand it, and we respond to it. So for the Israelites, God's chosen people, this was a covenant bound by a book, God's word given to them, setting His terms, demanding their response, guiding their worship. See, God's word was hugely important in the ceremony, but perhaps something even more crucial was what made this covenant possible. The words were absolutely important in laying out the terms and calling for a response, but the words alone were not enough to seal the covenant. There needed to be something that bound the God and his people physically. It demanded something else. See, this was a covenant confirmed by blood. Following on from verse 4, he and Moses rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. See, what we need to know about altars during Moses' time was that it represented God's presence. It was a place where sacrifices would be made to God. In ancient times, altars were important as this was where sinners would worship God. It is at altars where God's people would offer up sacrifices to him because in the presence of a God who is indeed perfect, blameless, holy, sin came at a cost. Sin required death. See, altars were built as places where the people of God would offer up uh, sacrifices to a holy God who demanded death from sin. So here in verse 5, they would offer up a burnt offering, an animal without blemish, one that would take on the death as a substitute. They offered up a whole burnt offering given to God, a costly sacrifice offered in their stead so that they could enter into this covenant. But along with the burnt offering, the Israelites would also offer peace offerings, in other words, fellowship offerings, which celebrated their fellowship with God. You know, what a rich description of what it meant to worship God and enter into fellowship with Him. You know, in their worship, an altar was built to commemorate and dedicate what God has done in establishing this covenant with them. Yet in their worship, a sacrifice was needed to atone for their sins that they may, that they may have fellowship with a holy God. And what Moses did next was perhaps the most significant part of the ceremony. Verse 7, he took half the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this just sounds a little gross, doesn't it? It's, it's definitely not a COVID safe practice. And it makes us wonder what purpose did it serve to splatter blood on people? Well, there are a few really good reasons to this. Uh, I think what the sprinkling of blood, of blood does is symbolize the, the consecrating of the nation Israel as a holy nation, you know, set apart for the Lord, like an initiation into the covenant that they have been received into this covenant. But I think it goes even deeper than that. See, back in ancient days, a common practice when establishing covenants was that you would take an animal, you cut it in two and walk through with the animal strewn on either side. And what this signified was the seriousness of the covenant. It was a way of saying, may I be like this animal if I fail to keep the covenant established? 
I think of Genesis 15 where Abram had a vision of a smoking fire pot which represented God and God was the one who walks between the cut animal essentially saying, saying that should this be me if I fail to keep this covenant? See, what this covenant practice reveals to us is that this is a matter of life and death. The covenant is undeniably serious. See, for the Israelites to be sprinkled with blood means that they were seriously committing to this proper covenant. Again, Riken says, this covenant was not signed but was sealed in blood, which showed that the whole arrangement was a matter of life and death. Keeping the covenant meant that life would ensue. Breaking it led to the spilling of blood and to death. And this all sounds pretty weighty, doesn't it? Well, the good news is there's another, another reason the sprinkling of blood was done. The sprinkling of blood on God's people was also done as a sign of God's mercy. Notice that the blood was first thrown against the altar. See, what this signified was that the blood of the sacrifice has been accepted. God has accepted the payment for for sin. He had forgiven them. Atonement was made. But not only that, what the blood on the altar signaled was a propitiation that God was satisfied. He was appeased. He has accepted their sacrifice and has turned aside his wrath. And so when what follows is the blood then sprinkled on God's people, we can understand it to mean that God has accepted their sacrifice. God has forgiven their sins. They are included in the covenant. All that the blood signified when sprinkled on God's altar would directly benefit God's people as it now applied to them. See, Peter N says, when God commanded Moses to sprinkle the people with blood in, in Exodus 24, he was making a definitive and unequivocal statement. Israel is his. See, for Moses to put half of the blood on the altar first reminds us that before the Israelites could have any sort of relationship with the holy God, God had to be the one who first accepted their sacrifice for their sins. We see how Moses reminds us, verse 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. It all starts with God. So he initiated the covenant. He called them to worship. He provided their sacrifice through an animal. He forgives them of their sins. He accepts them in his presence. And after their sacrifices were made, we see verse 9, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. There, were, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And there's something quite astounding about this picture. Here was a holy and righteous God who in chapter 19 could only be worshipped from a distance. Yet now we read he's communing with his people as they ate and drank. See, it was custom back then that after a covenant was sealed, the parties would sit down and share a meal together afterwards. And what it did was symbolise a friendship, a, a relational bond between the two. And it makes, makes sense. Like Food and drink really brings people together. We think of Melbourne West, that's like our slogan basically, come, we, there will be food and drinks. Like It's a great symbol of belonging. So it is the same here. A covenant has been sealed between two parties and now they celebrate. Eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord is a table fellowship with God. So thinking all through this, this was quite the ceremony. 
wasn't it? And I think that this chapter is such a great example of what it looks like to be in a right relationship with God. See, this first worship service confirming the covenant God made with Israel really did set the pattern for God's people going forward. And yet there's something which just doesn't sit right because what we'll eventually see happen in the book of Exodus is the same Israelites who responded with gusto, yes, Lord, we will obey every last word of your covenant in just a few chapters' time. We'll break the very first commandment on a whim, which was just a taste of what's to come for the future Israelite generations as they would continually sin and break the covenant over and over again. Hearing this, it'd be fair to ask, well, what's the whole point of this whole covenant and and sacrificial system established by God with his people then? All it did is is remind them, the Israelites, that they simply can't keep their end of the agreement. Isn't there a better way? Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected all for all time those who are being sanctified. See, in Exodus 24, we read of a confirmation of a covenant that foreshadows an even greater covenant, a better covenant, a new covenant. What the Mosaic covenant did was reveal to God's people just how sinful they were and how much they needed a saviour. And consistent to God's gracious character in Exodus, God would be the one who provided this saviour, his very own son, Jesus. See, Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Exodus 24, while God called Israel up into his presence to worship him in this covenant, In Jesus, God would come down into the presence of sinners to save them in the new. See, while Israel would ineffectively promise to obey and uphold God's laws in his covenant, in this covenant, Jesus would faithfully keep and fulfill God's law as the new. While Israel would provide an animal sacrifice as atonement by its blood shed on an altar, God would provide his own son sacrifice as atonement for us by Christ's blood shed on a cross. See, while Exodus 24 is a beautiful picture of a ceremony confirming the covenant made between God and his nation Israel, an even grander picture is God confirming his new covenant with us in Jesus. See, Jesus is the costly sacrifice offered in our stead so that we could enter into his covenant is Jesus who is the ultimate peace offering, who has reconciled us to God that we may enter into fellowship with him. It's Jesus who sealed this covenant in his blood, marking this a matter of life and death, where only in him does life ensue. Again, Hebrews 10 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, 
but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, the wonderful part of this is that his sacrifice was a sacrifice once for all. There is no need, no longer a need for further sacrifices at an altar, no need for a sprinkling of blood because it was all paid for at the cross. See, in Exodus, all that the blood signified when sprinkled on God's altar would directly benefit Israel as it now applied to them. For us, God's people today, all that Jesus' blood signified when sprinkled on the cross would directly benefit us as it now applies to you and I. See, at the cross, atonement was made. Sins were forgiven. God's divine wrath was appeased. We are reconciled to him. At the cross, salvation is found. God has made a covenant with us in Christ. To those who put their faith and trust in this Jesus, whose blood was shed on behalf of our sin, God makes the definitive and unequivocal statement, you are mine. So what we see in Exodus 24 is a great covenant sealing ceremony a ceremony that uh, wonderfully patterned worship for God's people for generations to come. And while today, each Sunday, we may not be taking part in something as unique as a covenant sealing ceremony, but similarly, what we are doing is gathering together as God's people to worship this same God. As people of the new covenant, each time we're gathered in worship, we can be reminded of the wonderful covenant we have in Jesus. We can be confident to draw near to God in worship, just like the Israelites did, but ours because of what Jesus has done. We can have full assurance of faith and forgiveness as our hearts are sprinkled clean, like the Israelites were sprinkled, but ours by the blood of Jesus. We too gather around God's word in worship, just like the Israelites did, but ours as it is the word which tells us more of our Saviour, Jesus. And as the Israelites heard God's word and confessed in faith, all that the Lord has spoken we will do as we gather in worship today. We confess in faith all that the Lord has spoken has been done in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. We will follow him. So I want to close today with this. Remember that in our passage that towards the end, the 74 that would head up the mountain to eat and drink in the presence of the Lord, to celebrate the communion they had with God in this covenant. One of the more obvious reminders today of our covenant in Christ is in the taking of communion, where Jesus at the Last Supper, giving out bread and wine before his death, says in Luke 22, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, you know, signifying the blood he would soon shed as a sacrifice for many. But while communion has us looking backward, it also has us looking forward. See, in the book of Revelation, it speaks of a time where Jesus will return and mark the age of eternity, a time when all of God's people will be in the intimate and magnificent presence of God, just like those 74 in Exodus. And it talks of a great banquet where all those sitting at the table will be eating, will be drinking, will be celebrating with this good God, worshipping him, forever. This is what it means to be in the covenant with Christ.
See, Tim Chester writes, salvation is described as a perpetual feast with God. And every time we celebrate communion, we look back to the shed blood of Christ, which reconciles us to God. And therefore, we're able to look forward to the eternal meal, which embodies reconciliation enjoyed in the full and glorious presence of God. There will come a day where we will not worship him in a theatre or over a screen on Zoom, but we will worship him at his very table. Let's pray together. Father, how good you are that you're a God who, who has offered us your sacrifice in your son, Jesus, Lord. And in your uh, book of Exodus, and we see uh, this confirmation ceremony, this uh, covenant confirmation ceremony, we see a holy people, a people that you've set apart to be your people, Lord, offer up and say, we will do all these things, Lord. But we, as we saw, we know these are sinners who simply could not fulfill the law, yet you, out of your grace and mercy, would send us Jesus, who would fulfill it, who would live it, and who would be the blood sprinkled on the cross to atone for our sins, Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you that through this uh, covenant ceremony, we could see the significance of your word, that your word remains true today, that in your word, we get to see more and more of who uh, this was all pointing towards, your son, Jesus, that in this ceremony, we were able to see the reason that we have uh, life, that life ensues only in your son, Jesus, Lord. And we look forward to the day that we can be uh, in heaven with you, not at your feet, but at your table, eating, celebrating, worshipping you, not just for a moment, not just for a week, not just on a Sunday, but for eternity, Lord. What a joy that is to know. And we wait for that moment and we are so thankful that it only has come by the work of Jesus and all that is done. And we thank you, Heavenly Father. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, Or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.